0: Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fraggle Byrne. Every week I speak to leading figures from the world of sustainability and explore the sustainability agenda in marketing and strategy, technology, innovation, investment, and finance. We look at the latest thinking, what's working, and the future and evolution of the sustainability agenda. I'm very pleased today to welcome Dr. Samantha Montana to the Sustainability Agenda. Samantha is an assistant professor of emergency management at Massachusetts Maritime Academy. She teaches courses on disaster preparedness, response, recovery and mitigation, vulnerable populations in disaster, amongst other topics. Samantha is the author of Disasterology, Dispatches from the Frontlines of the Climate Crisis, published in 2021 by Park Row. So thank you very much, Samantha, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So fascinating work you're doing in a, in a very uh, important area, uh, disasters, responding to disasters, learning from previous disasters and the whole uh, field, I guess, of disasterology. Um, can you maybe just tell us a little bit about your background, your current work focus and how you've, you know, ended up, uh, I guess, exploring and researching about disasters?
1: Sure. So I first got started doing disaster work in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina and the levee failure. Um, I went down there to volunteer just for a week and was completely uh, just shocked at how severe the damage was. It was you know, the situation where you just kind of stood in the middle of the street and for miles in every direction, there was just complete destruction. And so I very quickly decided that this was the kind of situation that, you know, needed all hands on deck to help. And I ended up moving to New Orleans and I lived there for four years. I worked on various recovery issues from Housing to education, um, helping people fill out FEMA paperwork and insurance paperwork, basically just anything that kind of needed to be done related to the recovery in the city. And then while I was living there, the BP oil disaster happened along the Gulf Coast. And I had worked with a few environmental groups in New Orleans doing recovery work, and we kind of dropped everything there, started going down to Coastal Louisiana to help support the communities down there that were being most directly impacted um, by the oil disaster. And then then I kind of skipped around the country a little bit, going to some other major disasters um, that had happened across the country. Uh, again, working with various nonprofits, volunteering. And in the course of going from kind of one disaster to the next, I started to see a lot of similarities in terms of unmet needs and how difficult it was for people to move through the recovery process, um, you know, disparities and who was being impacted by these events. And so even though they were kind of on their surface very different, you know, a, a hurricane and a flood versus a, an oil spill versus a, a tornado, at their core, they had kind of all of these similarities in terms of um, kind of how the response and recovery system was operating. And um, so in kind of seeing seeing those challenges with the system itself, I decided that I should go to graduate school to learn more about how that system operates and to kind of better understand it so that I could better understand what we needed to do to change that system. And so I ended up going to graduate school to get my master's and PhD in emergency management from North Dakota State University. And um, once I was there, kind of dove into the research, uh, started doing research myself, um, started out doing research on the role of nonprofits and volunteerism in disasters. Uh, That's evolved now. Now I I mostly study the emergency management system itself, um, the various agencies that are involved at the local, state, and federal level. Um, and kind of better understanding the policy changes that are needed to make uh, the work that the emergency management system does more effective, efficient, and equitable.
0: Right, right. It's been a something of a journey then, and um, yeah. yeah, the the um, no shortage of disasters, and we can talk about the frequency of disasters. And I got interested to get some, I guess, some basic uh statistics but also uh facts about disasters that you know we 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 often focus on particular disasters and 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 maybe not so good at generalizing and understanding some you know uh, aspects patterns of of disasters but before we we go there can you maybe just tell us a little bit about um what, what's on your mind in terms of really the environmental crisis, disasters uh, that we're, we're facing at the moment, various interlocking, growing uh, problems and challenges? Is there anything in particular, Samantha, that, that, that you, you keeps you awake or worries you the most?
1: Yeah, I always say that there isn't one single event that really keeps me up at night. It's really the possibility and the the increasing likelihood of simultaneous events. So our emergency management system, whether you're looking at the U.S. system or you're looking internationally at individual countries or really the international system kind of as a whole, there is... Limited capacity in our ability to respond to various types of events. Certainly with COVID, we have seen that strained um, within certain countries, but even globally to an extent. Um, and so when we start having these major catastrophes and you start having multiple large-scale disasters, catastrophes occur simultaneously, you start to strain the emergency management system in a way that... Um, effectively prevents it from being able to effectively respond to unmet needs. Um, We've seen this happen. You know, I mentioned COVID. We have seen this happen in the U.S. um, a couple of times. Uh, One of the more recent ones was in 2017. We had a particularly bad hurricane season. That was when we had Hurricane Harvey in Texas, immediately followed by Irma in Florida and then followed by Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. And um, we also had wildfires going on in California at the same time. And when you look back at how the system was able to handle that many events in such a short time, it did not handle it well um, by the time we got to Hurricane Maria. Um, And so that is something that really concerns me as we go forward into the future and have uh, more frequent events, you know, that likelihood that we're going to have uh, more events happen at the same time uh, certainly raises concerns about our, our capacity to respond to that.
0: Yes, you you uh, believe that uh, certainly in, in America and where you've been researching and so forth, that emergency management is not good. It's not fit for purpose. And it's um, I think uh, you, you, you mentioned on one of maybe your social media posts, someone said to you, you just need to accept that emergency management is one of those fields where the more you learn, the worse it gets. So uh, you you, you um, can you talk a little bit, uh, maybe just about what you see as some of the, the biggest problems?
1: Yeah. So I'll speak about the U.S. here. Um, You know, we have been doing emergency management since the country was founded. We've had disasters. And the way that we have approached responding to those disasters has certainly changed over time. But our, our modern day emergency management system, you know, dates back to the 1970s. By some measures, that dates back to the 1950s. You know, we, we've had a, a, a while for this system to kind of be set up and become established. And one thing that I think people don't appreciate is how long it takes for even small changes to really be integrated into the emergency management system. And so when we look ahead... Uh, to, uh, again, an increased risk, increased likelihood of more frequent events, more people being impacted, and you look at the limitations that already exist within that system, you kind of pretty immediately run into some major problems. So, emergency management covers not only response and recovery, but also mitigation and preparedness. So the things we do to prevent disasters and ready ourselves to uh, handle the disasters that we don't prevent. So one example that in the US we're kind of notoriously bad at is being proactive uh, in trying to prevent disasters from happening and doing enough to prepare for disasters. Um, and again, these are, you know, kind of built into our system in terms of grant program incentives, and um, you know, it's connected back to the various laws and policies that govern our federal Emergency Management agency. And all of those things take time to change. And uh, again, when you kind of look at what this timeline is of uh, our increasing risk, we're not making changes fast enough within the emergency management system to even kind of stay level with what it provides to the public right now, let alone increase its services to meet that growing need.
0: Right. So there is a... Organizational bureaucratic elements, so the mitigation is clearly uh, a very big area, and when it comes to climate and so forth uh, a lot lot of attention uh, there for sure um, it's probably different when it comes to responding to crisis because we you 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 have we have experience of previous crises. And we we, we we can we can see what what works and what doesn't work in various different situations. So maybe can you talk a little bit about that, and uh, give us a sense of uh, what, what 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 you think about that?
1: Yeah, sure. So one thing I'll, I'll clarify too in terminology here: when I say uh, when I say mitigation, I'm referring to a hazard mitigation, which in the climate space would be more akin to climate adaptation. Um, so yeah, we've been, we've been doing hazard mitigation for, you know, centuries in in various ways. Um, so we actually, you know, we, we have a pretty good idea of the kinds of mitigation techniques that we need to use to prevent flooding or prevent wildfires, um, or, you know, prevent, um, you know, severe damage from earthquakes, for example. We know that building codes really matter. We know that preventing development in particularly high risk areas Um, will dramatically minimize damage. We know that uh, updating our uh, stormwater management systems to better accommodate heavy rainfalls, Uh, we know that we need to uh, rebuild wetlands and use natural uh, mitigation strategies to prevent flooding along coastal areas. Um, We know that, you know, We have been doing buyouts of homes for many, many decades in the U.S. in places where uh you know homes have been built where they probably shouldn't have been uh we know how to uh well theoretically we we know how to build and maintain levees when that is the the most appropriate method so we you know we have a lot of ideas about how to at least significantly minimize right. the damage
0: so, so, yeah so here well, you you've you mentioned Uh, It it sounds very uh, wide ranging, quite vast. How do you impose some structure on this? It sounds, of course, disasters are pervasive in in so many different uh, uh, arenas, certain frequency of disasters, certain locations of disasters and, and, you know, and and ways of responding, because clearly the way you respond to fire is very different from an earthquake to, you know, or or are there some generic principles? How, How do you impose some kind of framework to think about this?
1: Sure. Yeah. So, well, that's really what emergency management is. So we take an all hazards approach in the U.S., which means our response system um, is built on the common principles looking across events. So regardless of the type of event, we know coordination, communication, collaboration, cooperation, cooperation, Uh, leadership, trust with the public are going to be the key tenants um, that have to be achieved to be effective. So in the US, we have created a pretty complex uh, response system. Uh, It falls under the National Response Framework, um, and it's called the National Incident Management System. Um, And we, through that, every first responder agency in the country, many other nonprofits, uh, local governments, private businesses are all trained on a a common operating system um, so that you can effectively send a fire department from California to Massachusetts, and they should be able to immediately integrate in to a response that's unfolding. So we do have... um, an established system, in that sense, it uh, has some limitations, of course, but um, there there is an existing framework in that sense. Okay,
0: okay, and um, but what you're suggesting is there are rich insights available that aren't being that haven't been brought into the system that uh, somehow the uh, approaches responses haven't integrated new ideas that are new observations new maybe research findings about particular ways of dealing with the uh with, with, with disasters and to what extent is it i suppose uh, a question of not so much of of information that people don't know but rather just structuring uh bureaucracy getting information just actually implementation
1: Sure. Yeah. So I, I think going back to the mitigation strategies, the <laughs> one of the, the fundamental problems for why we have not done more mitigation is that it's not popular a law, uh, among lawmakers. So when I say we have the knowledge of how to do this, I'm referring to a variety of scientists from many different disciplines. I'm talking about engineers, I'm talking about local community advocacy groups, um, and you know the the issue is not necessarily the the technical aspect of this. It's having the political will to do these mitigation projects. Many of them are very expensive. They are projects that are probably not going to really pay off until that lawmaker is already out of office. Um, there are competing you know, interest in um, a community for various funding and attention from government. And so one of our, our big challenges is figuring out a way to more effectively lobby for these mitigation projects that we know are needed.
0: Right, right. And how's that going?
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> um you know, so there there are some positive um things here. I will say um the Biden administration has put substantially more money towards mitigation through FEMA specifically. So FEMA has over a billion dollars going to mitigation projects across the country annually now, um which is much more than uh, ever before. Um, At the same time, again, there's kind of this issue of scale, right? And, um, you know, even that billion dollars is is not sufficient to actually meet the need everywhere across the country. Um, I do think that because we have had so many disasters recently, there is much more attention at the local level uh, about the need for mitigation projects. And I think that there is Um, potentially some more pressure coming from local communities on state and federal government to um, make that happen.
0: Yeah, very interesting, very interesting. I'm not sure that that, that figures from the insurance industry are a fair reflection of the kinds of disasters you're talking about, but how do you measure or get a sense of the scale of disasters and how has that uh, figure been changing over time?
1: Yeah so it's actually quite difficult to measure uh in in really kind of hard numbers how the scale of disasters are changing. Um, quantifying disasters is a really kind of tricky thing to do. Um, You mentioned, you know, the insurance industry, they're interested in kind of one aspect, whereas um, other uh, researchers may be focused in other aspects. So um, kind of when you look at overall trends of disasters, uh, we're not always kind of measuring what we think we're measuring. I think probably the most important need from, or the most important measure from my perspective is need. So what is the actual need in communities after a disaster has happened? And is that growing? Um, And I don't have hard numbers on this, but from kind of what I've seen across the country, there is an increasing need after disasters um, in terms of, uh, you know, the rate of people who are uninsured, the uh, financial uh, status of the people who are affected, and uh, the extent to which the nonprofit sector has responded. Um, Kind of across the board, you see um, this uh, kind of I mean, increasing need among individuals uh, as they move through that recovery process. Um, And then certainly you can look at things like the number of billion dollar events in the U.S., for example, which is increasing, I think, just about every single year. Um, So there are, you know, kind of a a bunch of different measures that you can look at to kind of get an indication of of how those events are increasing.
0: Right. Very interesting. And when it comes to response to crisis. I suppose uh, mitigation is always challenging, I suppose, because you're involved in, to some degree, what if, if something's going to happen in the future. Can you talk about that a little bit and, uh, you know, what 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 is some of the best practice there?
1: Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, like I said earlier, in the U.S., we have a, a relatively well-established response system on kind of the formal side of things. Um, one thing I I would like to point out is that anytime there is a disaster, there is also what I would call an informal response. So the true first responders in any disaster are the survivors of that disaster. Um, And so one thing that is really unique about response is that you see widespread emergence among um, the people that have been affected. You see that they Actually, come together to help each other. You know, they're not just sitting around waiting for help to arrive, they self organize. um, One kind of Interesting statistic is that you are more likely to be um, rescued by a neighbor or a family member than you are from any kind of formal search and rescue team, um, because, uh, you know, everybody immediately springs into action, starts creating, you know, these informal search and rescue groups. Uh, They start opening shelters and start handing out supplies and helping with injuries, all before any kind of formal help arrives. So one thing that is um, kind of interesting about response is that you have this kind of back and forth between the formal system of these formal trained responders who are coming into a community and then this informal system that um, kind of has a, a bit of a mind of its own. Um, and both parts of the, that system are incredibly important to having an effective response. In fact, I don't know that you can have an effective response without having both of those sides of the system working well. Um, so that is kind of the the kind of core tenet of response then on top of that in terms of kind of response effectiveness we're looking at some of those core principles i mentioned earlier you know having really strong leadership um communicating really well with the public um you know coordinating all of the various groups and agencies that are involved you know you in you know these large disasters you can have thousands if not Tens of thousands, in some cases, of various groups and agencies that are involved, um, you know, in some of these larger catastrophes. And so finding ways to coordinate all of those efforts, um, to not waste resources, to not have needs go unmet, is a, an incredibly complex um, endeavor.
0: Yeah, no, very interesting. I did an interview a while back with, I think, Stefan um in Germany, and he's done quite a bit of research uh, in, I guess, uh, some related areas. But we talked a lot about the importance of, I guess, social, civic infrastructure that makes, for example, cities cohesive and collaborative. And that these, you know, the quality of the social relationships in a particular uh, area, a particular city, for example, is an important determinant of the, 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 the success of the uh, response to 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 uh, disasters, and I think you 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 allude to this as well um, earlier. But to what extent is that uh, taken into account? To what extent are there arms of these organisations that are looking at these kinds of issues and 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 and, and, and taking maybe a kind of community based focus?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting question. So certainly, um, social capital and kind of the extent of social networks within a community can influence kind of how that emergence unfolds. Um, there, There's Kind of some different ideas within emergency management about kind of how to handle this. Um, There's definitely kind of a line of thinking in emergency management that um, is maybe the more traditional view that kind of views first responders as, as being the heroes who come rushing into a community and kind of take over and are saving the day. Um, And then there is kind of a a newer, uh, more kind of community-based approach to emergency management that views uh, the, the formal system coming in as being something that lifts up the work already being done. By the local community. Um, and I think in the US right now, we're maybe in a little bit of a transition, possibly, but between those kind of two ways of thinking. Um, FEMA specifically has language that they use, um, which says that the whole community needs to be involved. Um, so it, they're kind of getting at this idea of uh, the community really being involved in emergency management work. Um, of course, how that actually manifests it in practice is going to look uh, kind of different um, depending on, on the situation.
0: Right, right. Yeah, very interesting. Now, the uh, uh, United States has historically recently at least been very polarized when it comes to uh, climate and uh, uh, Global warming to what extent uh, are the uh, various uh, protocols, the bodies uh, disaster bodies you mentioned at BEMA as well, to what, how have they responded to climate and, and, and in particular, and to what extent have these ideas have the, the you know, have, ha- have, have new protocols been developed, new ways of looking at this and, and, and maybe more resources added in, in particular areas?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So in terms of climate change and emergency management in the U.S. right now, I would say that, um, funnily enough, somebody, I I know a researcher who's in the process of doing a study on this. So we're going to have hard numbers hopefully soon. But um, I would say that A good portion of the emergency managers across the U.S. understand that climate change is real. They're seeing the impacts directly in their communities. I think one thing that's important to understand is that emergency managers and emergency management is a frontline climate system, right? These are the people who are on the ground in their communities visibly seeing the impacts every single day so um, I think probably most emergency managers across the country uh, understand that the climate is changing um, at FEMA in the new when the Biden administration took over uh, we they nominated a new head of FEMA Deanne Criswell and she has a uh, Emphasized climate change and prioritized that within um, her administration and within the agency. Um, It's only you know been a couple of years, so you know it's going to take kind of a a while for um, I think kind of a a full understanding of really what climate change means for emergency management to really kind of take hold within the agency and kind of more broadly across emergency management. I think in a lot of ways, many emergency managers are kind of still at the point of kind of triaging the disasters that they're experiencing currently and have not necessarily really had the the time and ability to look much further down the road to see what climate change means for uh, the work of our field, um, and you know, it is—it's um, it, definitely a, a priority. Um, one of one of the big challenges, going back to what I said earlier about capacity is that in the United States, most communities only have a part-time emergency manager. Um, Very often, it is the fire chief who is kind of doubling as the emergency manager. And so we have a lot of people in emergency management positions who don't necessarily have any kind of education in climate change um even if they you know believe that it's happening and understand that it's true they they may not have that expertise um and they also just don't really again have time to be thinking about that past what is currently being experienced so one of the the kind of major changes and shifts that we need to see in the US to be able to really kind of look further down the road and, and envision what that future looks like and, and start really preparing for that is building out the capacity, particularly of local emergency management agencies so that you start having more than one person working in an agency. You you know, you start bringing in people with kind of broader educational backgrounds um, who have the, the time and the knowledge to do that kind of work.
0: Right, right. Presumably they will need vastly larger budgets. To what extent have budgets increased? To what extent are they being considered? Who makes the decisions? And uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Because, you know, expanding the capacity of local disaster uh, groups and so forth, um, fantastic. But the the scale of uh, increasing disasters, climate-related disasters, you know is, is is increasing dramatically and you could have very dramatic increases from one year to another and is there some flexibility in the budgeting process that that allows for significant numbers of significant investments uh, support in, in FEMA and, and, and related agencies?
1: I love that you have asked me this. So I'm actually part of a research team who has been studying budgets across the the country to try and actually be able to answer this exact question. Um, So what I I can tell you about the budget situation is um, at uh, FEMA's budget is... um, not enough on the operational side of things. Um, so they, FEMA is short staffed. They just announced they're hoping to hire, I think it's something like 1500 more people over the course of the next year. Um, so, you know, they're kind of tr- dramatically understaffed and, and along with that, I would say underfunded operationally. Um, when you start looking at state level budgets, um, again, you see kind of a a wide variety across the country, but generally I would say state emergency management is also underfunded. Um, and then when you look at local emergency management agencies, those are absolutely no question underfunded. Um, there definitely are some places where budgets have increased. There are also some places, however, where budgets Especially during COVID, actually were decreased. So, again, kind of a mixed bag there. One thing that I will point out uh, about the US uh, budget approach is that there is a single grant program that FEMA runs. It's called the Emergency Management Performance Grant Program. And this is an annual grant program, It, it currently provides about $350 million. To state, to every single state and territory uh, across uh, the country. And it's divided up based on a formula uh, based on the state's population. And so every state gets, you know, a a couple million dollars, tens, millions of dollars um, every single year. And one of the things that my research group and I have been looking at is how are states deciding how to spend that funding. And what we're finding is that many states are keeping a substantial part of that funding to wholesale fund their emergency management agency at the state level and then they're passing along some of that funding to county local governments and they seem to be using that funding often to fund the salaries of their uh, emergency managers and so the, uh, when, when you talk about kind of weaknesses in the overall emergency management system, we have a lot riding on this $350 million. It is effectively propping up large portions of local and state emergency management across the country. Um, so when you know we're thinking about budgets, it's quite limited in what emergency management agencies are getting. A lot of it is coming from the federal government. Um, And so we're really not seeing, again, in most places, that state level investment and that local level investment in emergency management. And I mentioned earlier, you know, the majority have part time emergency managers, you know. That, that job title shouldn't even exist. We should not have anything less than full-time emergency managers. I, when I kind of envision of what kind of uh, increases we're talking about here, I, I'm not talking about doubling budgets or doubling staff. I'm talking about, you know, five times, six times what we currently have in order for those agencies to genuinely be able to effectively prepare for these events, to respond when they happen, to help communities through the recovery process, and to actually do that prevention work and take into account climate change. And keep in mind, I mean, (laughs) emergency management covers a lot of ground. Obviously, Our focus here is on climate change, but they're also responsible for um, things like cyber attacks. That is something that emergency management is remarkably far behind in addressing. So certainly, you know, a a tremendous need for an increase in budgets across the board.
0: Yeah, no, very interesting. Now, um, I mean, it seems that these figures though are dwarfed by the, the annual costs, I mean, Clearly, there are questions about the figures that are used and what they're taking into account. But some of the costs I've seen, you know, in the region of 50, 60 billion dollars associated with hurricanes, storm related flooding alone in a a given year uh, at the moment. So these are vastly different scales of figures, because if you look at it on a a financial basis, the, the amount of money that's saved from these investments potentially could be quite, quite, quite huge.
1: Yeah, there's definitely ways to approach that. I will say researchers really haven't done that. Um, Like I said earlier, kind of the... The data situation uh, with disasters is a bit complex, Um, but certainly, I I mean, we do have data in terms of uh, the federal government's investment in mitigation, for example. So um, there's a a study done every couple of years that measures um, this, and, and they have found consistently that for every dollar the federal government spends on mitigation, they save $6 in response and recovery. So the cost-benefit analysis is there. We know that investing in mitigation and in preparedness will save money in the long run. Again, it goes back to um, the political incentive not necessarily lining up in this case with the economic incentive. So in this case, um, we have a situation where the economic incentive doesn't necessarily line up with the political incentive, right? You may save $6 for every dollar you spend on a mitigation project, but you might not be saving that $6 until 50 years from now when the hurricane comes. So there is still kind of this, you know, disalignment uh, between the, the the economic benefit and the political benefit.
0: I was wondering, uh, to what extent your, your well, your researcher, to what extent FEMA and, and and other I guess uh, organizations like that take into account or exploring or researching what lessons from other countries that, in ways, you know like Bangladesh for example that that as you know annual periodic flooding and so forth and as ways of dealing with that because it's such a pervasive, and the Netherlands is another example where, you know, they're, they're, they're dealing with uh, reclaiming the land, but different countries are prone to different kinds of disasters and will have developed uh, particular approaches to dealing with that.
1: Yes, you know, certainly there are uh, many places across the U.S. that have looked uh, kind of internationally to get ideas for engineering and whatnot. You mentioned the Netherlands, um, and they sent teams of, of researchers and engineers to New Orleans after Katrina, for example. Um, So certainly, there is a a sharing of ideas. And I think everyone is watching, you know, the approaches taken by other countries. Um, For example, I I know a lot of folks in the US have watched um, how Venice's surge barrier process has gone. Um, And and so certainly, there is, um, you know, the uh, impetus to, to look internationally. At the same time, I will say, There are even, you know, stepping outside of engineering differences in terms of landscape differences, there are huge, huge differences um, from country to country in terms of the political landscape, the economic landscape, how risk manifests, culture surrounding uh, people's perception of risk and kind of risk tolerance um and that's not to say that an idea in one country can't be kind of picked up and used in another country but i will say it is really difficult we we really are comparing apples to oranges when we're talking about emergency management one country to another the, the kind of situational context surrounding this is really specific to each country. Um, and, you know, even in that sense, I think countries that um, culturally and kind of politically tend to be more similar to one another, even then, once you start kind of digging down um, into uh the approaches that are taken in emergency management, they, they really do look quite different. So I, I tend to use the UK and the US in this context, you know, our, you know, we have cultural similar, similarities some political similarities and whatnot. But when, uh, you know, you hear UK researchers talk about disasters and their emergency management system, it really is operating on a completely different scale than the U.S. system is, right? The U.S. is so much bigger. We have so many more disasters. We have so many more bigger disasters that the the way we have to approach emergency management looks very different than the way you approach it in the UK. So uh, again, certainly, you know, room for kind of sharing ideas, but Um, emergency management for me, I think is something that is pretty country specific and I'll take it one step forward further. Um, you know, even looking at emergency management within the United States, the way hurricanes are handled and thought about in Louisiana is completely different than the way we talk and think about hurricanes in New York and New England, for example. Um, just, the you know, those internal differences and differences in, in how states have emergency management set up and, and the, the kind of culture surrounding those types of events in each place. So, again, it's not to say that you can't kind of apply findings more broadly. Sometimes you can, but you've got to be really, really careful with that situational context.
0: Right. As you mentioned there, that states have different capabilities. Uh, different cultures and uh, different histories, different geographies as well, and uh, generating change at a state level is one question. What about at a national level? How how does change happen when it comes to, you know, US-wide, FEMA, and, and at that level?
1: Yeah, so historically, the way that disaster policy has changed has been almost always in the wake of a major disaster. Um, there is, yeah, you know, there's, we call it a, a window of opportunity, a policy window of opportunity that can open after particular events. It's not after every disaster. There are events we call focusing events where um, they, you know, really capture national attention and that everything kind of lines up for, for policy to be able to be changed. Um, so, you know, we, we see policy change in that way. Um i in terms of how I think about this though we are at a point in the u s where I think we need comprehensive national emergency management reform so when I say that I, I mean local and state level reforms and then also federal reforms um at you know at the federal level um there is kind of a, a laundry list of policy changes that are needed to really um fix things that are broken within our system, fix things that were not kind of built correctly from the beginning within that system. And then also, you know, kind of level up that system to deal with this increased risk related to climate change and our kind of changing hazardscape across the country. Um, and, um, you know, I, Potentially, you you wait for some major disaster to happen and you kind of have it written and you push try to push it through. Um, But really what we're kind of missing in the U.S., and perhaps this is true in other countries as well, uh, is that we don't really have a lobby for emergency management. We have a couple of emergency management associations who advocate for emergency management funding generally um but we don't really you know we're not like um healthcare where you have these you know massive you know insurance companies and associations and hospitals and and all of these people that come together to lobby for policy change we ju- we just don't have it in emergency yeah. management
0: and and can i just ask as well that and i think you 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 written about this as well that disasters don't hit equally but they they tend to amplify inequalities, in injustices, and the poorer communities are hit disproportionately. So presumably that has a political impact as well.
1: Yeah, certainly. I mean, you know, any kind of community can experience a disaster, but certainly you see poor communities communities of color, communities that are not politically powerful, do tend to be affected at a disproportionate rate. Um, And so, you know, without, you know, having, you know, the communities that are politically influential uh, impacted, that certainly can help kind of stem the the advocacy in Congress.
0: Very interesting. It sounds like a lot of work to be done. It's, It's such a huge as you say, including everything from, you know, cyber uh, disasters or challenges or intrusions across the spectrum of disasters to hurricanes, to the emerging various climate challenges and disasters. It's such a huge area, such, such a, so much work to be done, it sounds.
1: Definitely.
0: Thank you so much for your time today and the great work you're doing.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.